Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweil as he continues his sermon series in James. If you would like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Not too long ago, uh, Brandy and I had the awesome privilege of going to the Holy Land. Uh, we took a tour of Israel, and it was, it was absolutely fantastic. It was ten nights in Israel. We spent the first three nights overlooking the Red Sea in this great resort that was just right there. It was incredible. We took a boat ride across the Red Sea. We went to Capernaum. We went to Galilee. We went to Nazareth. We went to all these places where Jesus walked, where he performed his miracles. We went down to the Dead Sea. Brandy put a whole bunch of mud on her. I don't know if you guys are up to these, uh, these whole mineral things in the Dead Sea, but if you want to invest in real estate, I would highly encourage you to invest in the soil around the Dead Sea because a shovel of mud there is worth about 20 bucks uh, in, in this world, and it's, and it's unbelievable, so kind of being facetious, but it was incredible. Uh, we saw all of these places, and our tour guide actually saved the best of the trip for last. For the last three days, we, we stayed in the old city of Jerusalem. We got to walk the Via Della Rosa. We got to see the places, uh, the upper room, where Jesus performed all these great miracles right in Jerusalem. And, and the best part of it, the thing that I, I was hoping was going to be the, the ultimate climax, we saw the garden tomb where they believe that Jesus was buried, resurrected from that tomb. The one place that I wanted to see the most was Calvary. I wanted to just be able to, to go there and kind of just, I don't know what I, in, in my mind, I had this view of just this green grassy knoll overlooking the city or something. And we go to this place, is super, super excited to see it. And it was like the biggest letdown on the planet. We get to the place where they think that Jesus was crucified. There's this huge Catholic church there. Inside of it is all of these shrines, and people are, are kissing the rosary, and they're literally holding on to these icons. It was, it was the biggest letdown ever. Personally, I was looking for something that was authentic. What I experienced that day in Jerusalem was a, a cheap knockoff, something that wasn't real, the way that I depicted it and the way that Scripture depicts it in the Bible. To be authentic simply means this. Something is authentic when it is real, true, or genuine. And it is diametrically opposed to that which is false, unreliable, or counterfeit. When it comes to our people in our culture, in our day, uh, we, are, we are not fans of the authentic. What we want instead is a person who's sincere. We want somebody who is kind, maybe non-judgmental. We want all love, but we don't want truth, right? We live in a postmodern culture that, man, it, you can be this way, you can be that way, you can have one foot here, one foot there, and that's actually celebrated instead of just drawing firm lines on truth and what's not true what's authentic and what's inauthentic. And we have a problem with this in our culture, but James is different. Jesus is different. Jesus says that the way to God is exclusive. It's not inclusive. There's only one true way. I'm right. All these other people are wrong. 
if you want to have a relationship with God, an authentic relationship with God, you got to go through Jesus. I like the book of James because it's authentic. I don't like the book of James because it steps on my toes a lot. Have you guys heard this phrase, I need to wear my steel-toed boots when I listen to the word being preached? James is going to step all over all of our toes. Another reason I like James is because of uh, the missions and evangelistic components to this loaded letter in the New Testament. James is, is important because non-Christians don't read the Bible. They read Christians instead. And they're actually desperately longing to see something that's authentic in our Christian lives. James is going to show us how to be those authentic Christians. He's going to show us what real Christianity looks like, how it's practiced, how it's lived, the things we know and the things that we do. Ultimately, they need to line up with who we are as Christians in our relationship to Christ. I've entitled our, our sermon series through James as Authentic. We're going to talk about an authentic, true, genuine faith in Christ throughout this series. For the next several weeks, here's what we're going to do, and we often do at Tulsa Bible Church. We're just going to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, look at the context and explain these verses and apply them in different ways to, now that you hear, you hear them being applied to my heart, but to all of our lives and the situations that we go through. But before we do that and start this, I want to give just a little bit of, of background information about James. I think this is going to be helpful for us. First, let's talk about the writer of this book. Look down in your text in James. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. It should say something like this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one of the, one of the only mentions of of Christ, actually, throughout this letter, which is somewhat shocking. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion, ESV will say, greetings. Now, let's, again, let's talk about James just uh, at the beginning here. Traditionally, scholars and evangelicals have contributed the writer James here specifically to the, we say, the half-brother of Jesus, or the brother of Jesus. And in the Gospels, here's what we know about Jesus' family. There was at least five boys in the family. Jesus, of course, was the oldest, we understand, born from a virgin. Uh, James was the next. In the list of Jesus's brothers, in both Matthew and Mark, there's four that are listed. In both of those gospels, James is the very next, so he's probably the eldest son after Jesus. Um, imagine being the son who was born after Jesus in your family. The 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 amount of expectations and the healthy context of what it's like. Imagine being the brother of Jesus. Like, how are you going to live up to that? Did, did Jesus ever do anything wrong to his parents and his family? James is, is next in line. There's, there's three other brothers even after that. We assume that he's the eldest. Assuming that James really is the brother of Jesus, we can I think we can take that with a firm amount of confidence. We don't know for sure. But in the Gospels, you got to remember that the apostles, the disciples, they're not depicted as perfect, pious, and pure all the time. Most of the time, they're actually de depicted as sinful, somewhat shameful, and at times, they're just sorry guys. Uh, something happened 
in the life of James that changed all that. Most of the disciples, we don't really, we don't know the hearts of the disciples, and what we have in the Gospels is not really clear. We don't know, but we think that they probably trusted Christ, at least some of them didn't even trust Christ until after the resurrection. And so I want to look at just a few verses in your New Testament, most of these I'll have up on the screen for you, that talk a little bit about, about James and how the life of Jesus impacted him. Here's one from 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. It says, For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received. Paul writes that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive when Paul was writing this, though some have fallen asleep. And then look at this last phrase. Then he appeared to James, and then to the rest of the apostles. Why is James singled out there in 1 Corinthians 15? He's going to become a very significant figure in the early church. What happened in the heart of James, that he goes from being kind of an unbelieving disciple, follower of Christ now, to this point that the early church is probably going to recognize him as a, as a leader in the church. And the answer goes back to this verse in 1 Corinthians 15. Here's what we know. We know for sure that he saw the resurrected body of Jesus in the flesh, in person. We can also probably take it, it's, it's likely fact that he was at the ascension of Jesus when he went up into the air at the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem. We probably also know that James was right there on the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church, when the Holy Spirit sends tongues of fire down upon the apostles. He was probably right there with them, seeing all these miraculous things happen. If there was any question about James' heart as a follower of Christ, it's answered after the resurrection of Christ. He saw him personally. He knew him personally. The Apostle Paul tells us even more James, again, he seems to be a significant leader in the church. And the book that we go to to understand a little bit more about this is Galatians. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, Paul specifically mentions that James is an apostle. But there's more than that. Look at Galatians 2, verse 9. I've got this, this verse up for you. When James, that's our guy, Cephas, Peter, and John who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. Now, by the time Saul the Pharisee became Paul the Apostle, there was three significant leaders in the church, James, Peter, and John. James was the first of those that are listed in the New Testament. And he calls them pillars in Galatians. Pillars are are massive entities that hold up structures. They're built on a, a strong foundation. And they support an edifice. And James is one of these pillars of the early church. Things are going to become even more clear when you look at Acts chapter 15. And and I won't have this verse up for you, but Acts chapter 15 is very significant, not only for understanding the time of of the apostles in Acts, but also for the rest of your New Testament. In Acts 15, something very significant happens. The apostle Paul and Barnabas are winning all of these Gentiles to the faith. They're believing like crazy. And then you've got these Jewish believers in Jerusalem that were still kind of, 
Yeah, they're one foot in the law, not knowing what to do with circumcision, food laws, all of these, these Sabbath rituals that they have. And what do we do with these Gentiles now that are coming into the faith? Well, Paul and Barnabas come to a Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. And lo and behold, at that council, they ask this question. What do we do with these pagan Gentiles? They're clearly believing in Jesus. Do we have them circumcised or do we not have them circumcised? Peter stands up and he gives one of his shortest but one of his best sermons in Acts 15. And immediately after Peter says what he says in that context, it's James who makes the final declaration of the church. And he says, here's the deal. With these Gentiles, we're going to ask them to do three things. Abstain from idolatry, abstain from things strangled by blood, and number three, keep themselves sexually pure. Outside of that, there is no circumcision that's required for faith in Christ. We're not going to hold them to that law because the gospel is all about grace. And they're just as much recipients of grace as we have been, us Jews, with the Old Testament. James chapter 1, let's continue reading verse 1. Um, a servant of God and Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what it says. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Uh, your text might say diaspora there. James primarily writes to Jews who became believers in Jesus Christ. And they were dispersed from Jerusalem. A step a take a step back and think about your New Testament now. James is an early church leader. Peter, James, and John are the three. They probably established the very first church in Jerusalem. Who better to write a book to the 12 tribes, to believers in Jesus Christ who were anchored in the Old Testament scriptures, had a Jewish ethnic background, than James? James is right there. He's a brother of Jesus. He's Jewish. He's a Hebrew. He's in Jerusalem. He's leading the church there. And so he, as a significant leader, writes this book to these believers that are scattered throughout the world throughout the earth. Tradition tells us that James was the first bishop in Jerusalem. He had a nickname. They called him James the Just. Tradition also tells us that he was martyred by being stoned to death in A.D. 62 in the first century. So we know a little bit about James. What do we know about the churches that he's writing to? This is a letter that isn't given to any one specific church. It's written to many churches with Jewish believers that have been scattered. Um, Brandy and I, before we came to Tulsa, for about six years we did ministry in rural Kansas. And it was, it was interesting, the church family that we ministered to, probably the radius out from the central hub, from Whitewater there, was about 20 miles. If you went 20 miles in any direction from that church, that was, that was the pocket of people that we were ministering to in rural Kansas which meant that we drove a lot of dirt roads, a lot of rock roads, and we had a lot of people in our church that were farmers. And I can't tell you how many times we drove past barbed wire fences and we saw something that looks like this. Have you guys ever seen this in the country before? Guys with head of, head of cattle everywhere? Every time we saw this huge, massive cow stinky, sticking his massive skull through the fence in order to get to the greener grass that was on the other side. And they'd stick out their long, massive tongues. Have any of you guys eaten a cow tongue before? 
pretty good. Tastes like, tastes like the rest of the cow. It's not, it's not bad. Tastes like beef. So you just stick it in a stew, put some potatoes around. Judy, it's okay. Don't, man, longhorns have long tongues too, so it's, it's one of those things. James is, James is a book that's super applicable for us in American church today. Because in America, we have a lot of people that go to church and they do church shopping, hopping, and dropping all the time. And it seems to be the, the refrain in churches that the grass is always greener at that church across the street or at that church on the other side of town. James, when you look at this book and when you consider the churches that he's writing to, because there are some very specific situations that he's going to touch on in this book, hard situations applicable even for us today, the grass is always greener outside of these churches that James is writing to. They are fraught with problems and issues that they are dealing with. When we, took an, when we take an honest look at James, the grass is greener in any other church other than the church that he is writing to. And let me show you just exactly what I mean. One commentator says this, this letter is written to real-life churches with real-life problems. All churches have real-life problems because all churches have real-life people in them. We're all sinners. We're all frail. We're very imperfect people. Pastors are very imperfect people. Elders, deacons are imperfect people, which means we're going to have problems and different things in the church. Some believers have idealistic views of the church that need to be studied, substituted for a realistic view of the church. And Diedrich Bonhoeffer, in his book Life Together, talks about the wish dream of a community, a biblical community. Everybody seems to have this wish dream where we have such close relationships, there's no issues, we just come in here, we walk on clouds, and everything is always perfect. Every song that we sing is always appreciated more than the song that was sung the last one. Every, everything that is said is agreed upon. Nobody gets their toes stepped on. This is, this is a letter that is, that is filled with issues. Let me just name a few of them. James has a building issue that he deals with. Look at chapter 2, verse 2 in James. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your, does your text say assembly there? So the ESV says, comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. That word for assembly in Greek is synagogue. The churches that James was writing to were believers, Jewish believers, who were still meeting in synagogues built for Judaistic believers, Judaism. These were Old Testament people that came into the faith and they kept their building. Imagine a church that meets in another church whose denomination is totally different than their church. You guys know any, any churches that do that? Man, this, meth, this church really looks Methodist. Does it not? What are we going to do? This church looks a lot like a synagogue. We're no longer a synagogue. This church looks a lot like a Methodist church. We're not a Methodist church. So what do we do with that? You've got building issues that are involved in James chapter 2. Have you ever heard anybody say, 
You know what the church really needs to do? What we really need to do is we need to just go back to the early church, how they were doing it. They met in houses and have all these issues with budgets and buildings and busyness and all the things that we've got. Really what they need to do is go back and read their Bible because yes, they do have issues with the building and yes, they do become problems in the church. They don't need to be something that divides us for sure. Again, very broken imperfect, sinful people dealing with issues. Number two, the churches James writes to had people who wanted to teach but were unworthy for that responsibility. Look at chapter three, verse one. Let not many of you become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. People say, man, that's a great biblical church that you've got. Your pastor is teaching the truth so clearly. Do you realize that in the New Testament, more times a preacher, a false teacher is tested, not necessarily by what they say, but by how they live their life, by their character, who they are? James talks about that. You can have all the right doctrine and know all the right things and still be condemned before God teaching the right things, living the wrong way. Whether you are Paul, Peter, or an apostle, the issue is not whether preachers are perfect or pious. The issue is calling. The issue is confirmation by the community of faith. Coming around those leaders, acknowledging them as having the gift of God upon them and supporting them in those teaching opportunities. Third issue this church, these churches that James write to, they are long on knowledge, but they are very short on application. They know a lot of the right things to do and a lot of the right biblical doctrines, but they are failing to put them into practice. James 1, verse 22, skip back to chapter 1. James calls these churches to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. In the community, there was a lack of concern for personal holiness and for their walk with Christ. They were learning and learning and learning. They were not applying, applying, applying. James speaks to those issues very clearly. Fourth issue that these churches had, they were not very caring for the poor. In fact, most of the people say that the uh, churches that James writes to are the working poor class at that time in the first century. And I don't want to touch on this, but all of James chapter 2 is dedicated to this issue in the church. We have a responsibility to care for the poor, the orphan, and the widow among us. Pure religion is doing that, James 1 verse 27. Um, here's something unthinkable. The church had a lot of conflicts, relational conflicts in it. Look at uh, James chapter 4. Verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Listen, these aren't just little skirmishes. These aren't things that are just like, okay, you got your thing, your preference, I've got my preference. Look how this verse continues. What causes quarrels and uh, causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Things were getting pretty heated in these churches. Relational conflicts were difficult to work through and to overcome to these churches. 
James 4, verse 11. Brothers were speaking evil against other people in their own church. Ephesians 6 reminds us that our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood in the body of Christ. It's against the rulers, the authorities. Personal conflicts so often blow up into huge, huge issues in the church. James is trying to keep us ahead of the game on that one. Um, sixth thing I got up here is, is the different social classes mixing. Look at, at chapter 1, verse 9. In 10, you're going to see a designation of, of two different groups of people. Let the lowly brother, the, the brother of humble means, perhaps, boast in his exaltation, let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. You've got different classes of people that are involved in these churches, low class and high class. With different classes of people come different politics, different jobs, different neighborhoods that they're a part of. Man, does the church today know anything about differing in politics and the division that that can cause in the body of Christ? Imagine a church where low class and high class can reach across the aisle. Imagine a church where liberals and conservatives can look to something deeper that unites them, the gospel, the blood of Christ, Jesus in a relationship with him. There's a lot of things to talk about here, and we will dig into them as we get into this text. When I met uh, uh, Dallas Seminary, I did an internship for uh, a church my graduating semester there. It was a really good experience. Got a chance to work with some small group ministries and, and just learn from a lot of other church leaders and pastors that were at that church. It's an incredible experience. And, and as I graduated, it wasn't but about uh, three or four weeks after that that God had called us to our first full-time ministry right here actually in Oklahoma. It's incredible. Brandy and I were extremely excited about it, um, just really looking forward to this opportunity. We had both just taken a, uh, God did something great in both of our hearts in college. So that college age was, was just um, something we felt like we could communicate well with them, do life with them, and that's where God impacted us the most. And a lot of people go into ministry where they themselves have been impacted the most. That was our story going into college ministry. I'll never forget what happened. I was meeting with a group of guys every Saturday morning. We met at Cracker Barrel at 10 o'clock in the morning. And I was telling them, sharing with them, guys, this is, this is amazing. I'm going to seek your prayers, but just, uh, just got this, this calling to go to this church in Oklahoma. And I'll never forget, I might have shared this story with you before, I'll never forget what one of the guys said to me over pancakes and sausage at Cracker Barrel. It literally looked me in the eye. First thing that anybody said at that, at that table. He said, you know what happens when churches have issues in Oklahoma, don't you? He said, somebody goes down the street and plants their own church because they can't work out the conflict. And I thought to myself at that moment, I was like, that's a really interesting thing to say for a young guy just graduated seminary going into the pastorate. Thanks for your encouragement, man. Great pancakes and biscuits. Hey, bring another hot roll over. This is good. Would you believe it? That was the first thing that I experienced. Nine months into ministry. That exact thing happened to me. Some of you in this room have experienced that, even here in Oklahoma. One commentator um, talks about 
ecclesiology. It talks about the church. A main thing that we're going to have to take a step back and look at when we read the book of James is our theology of the church, our ecclesiology. What is the church? Here's what one person says. The church The churches that James wrote to were composed primarily of Jewish Christians who were working poor. They faced challenges from the outside and turmoil from the inside, including a lack of love, power plays, disunity, and slander. Okay, so when we read James, the letter of James, two things are going through my mind, right? Number one is relief, and number two is responsibility. Number one, I'm relieved when I read this book. Thank the Lord there are other real churches out there who have real problems and real issues. I'm not the only one who's experienced those things. The second thing I think about is the responsibility. Okay, now what are we going to do about it? As pastors, as leaders of this church, we can't settle for mediocrity. We can't just point out the problems. We've got to offer solutions. We need to do something different for unity and love in the body of Christ. James is going to spur us on in that direction. James is a book that shakes our ecclesiology. He provides a very realistic picture of messy churches, and it begs the question, what is the church anyway? One of my very favorite theologians, he puts it this way, the church is an eschatological, covenantal, worshiping community of believers created and shaped by the word where the truth is taught, love is genuine, mercy is shown, accountability is evident, and where wanderers are restored. Let me read that one more time. The church is an eschatological, meaning a a future-oriented group of people. Covenantal, worshiping community of believers, created and shaped by the word, where the truth is taught, love is genuine, mercy is shown, Accountability is evident, and wanderers are restored. How does James put together this book? Uh, what, is the, what is the structure of this book? I want to give you two outlines really quickly before we get into this. Uh, the first is going to be more of a content outline. We would call this in, in ministry an exegetical outline. This is where we take the text and we just kind of explain what's there. We put a structure and an organization to it. It's interesting with the book of James There's about as many structures and outlines to this thing as there are commentators who write about it. Uh, James is all over the place. Seemingly, there is no structure. It's wisdom literature in many ways, and wisdom literature is like that. It's like trying to structure the Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. It's, It's very, very difficult. You get a topic here, you get a topic there, but I think the best content structure comes when when we read about these three key themes in the book. Now, James is going to give us a double introduction. He's going to talk about three things. First, trials. Second, wisdom. And then he's going to talk about poverty and wealth. And he does, does that two times in the very first chapter, in that order. Okay, so when you see trials, you're going to again pick that up in verses 12 through 18, towards the end of chapter 1, like it started at the beginning. Wisdom is talked about. It's approached two different times in chapter 1. First, in verses 5 through 8. Second, in verses 19 to 26. And you got wisdom and poverty. It's dressed once at the beginning and once at the end, all at the beginning of chapter 1. Through the rest of the body of the letter, 
you just reverse the order of what he was addressing in chapter 1. And I think that's the best content, exegetical, clear outline that I can give you. Whereas in the introduction, he started with trials, went to wisdom, and then talked about poverty and wealth last. In the body of the letter, he starts with poverty and wealth first. Then he goes to wisdom. Then he goes back to trials and perseverance towards the end of the letter. The conclusion would be found in chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Just two verses there. That's the content. When you preach this joker, I think it's a little bit different. I think the homiletical outline flows a little differently, and um, there's a commentator by the name of Wall who put this together. This makes a whole lot of sense, talking to Brad even this week as he was studying the book of James, um, and he agrees with this outline as well. I think when you preach James, you're talking to a group of people who has been scattered. They're not in the land of Jerusalem, uh, obtaining the promises that God had called them to, that he would one day restore Jerusalem and he would bring his people all back together for his eternal kingdom. We're not there yet. We're in a very fallen, sinful world. And living in a fallen, sinful world, you're going to face trials. You're going to face difficulties. The first thing I think James talks about is that in this fallen world, your faith will be tested. Your faith will be tested, your obedience will be challenged, your wisdom will be revealed, your heart will be examined. And finally, he says, your perseverance is going to be pressed. All of it leads to this thesis statement that's in James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. It says something like this. I want all of you, brothers and sisters, before I get this wrong, let me just read this. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And if you look at those three things, I think you see those fleshed out chronologically through the rest of the book. So as we preach this book, this is what I'm going to use for our preaching outline. Be quick to hear. James 1, 21, through the end of chapter 2, be slow to speak, James 3. Talks a lot about the tongue and the wisdom there, and then slow to anger, chapter 4, verse 1 through 5, verse 6. The last section I put as uh, persevere in the truth, and uh, commentators are really up, up for grabs when it comes to James chapter 5. Again, there's just not a lot of uh, consistency there. I think perseverance in the truth is the dominant, dominant theme of that last section. So that's where we're going to be going. As we te- teach through the book of James, I want you to center on James 1, 19 and 20. We're going to go there. We're going to stay there as the central verse. Through each section, we're going to go back to James 1, 19 and 20. What does it mean to be those, those three things that he lists there, and how is that fleshed out? James is ultimately a New Testament book that is going to step on our toes. James does not pull any punches. He doesn't color his writing with rose-colored glasses. He lets the chips fall where they may. He's not afraid to call a spade a spade. He's tough on believers. He needs to be tough because they're living in a fallen world and they're facing very, very difficult things. I think the best way that I can summarize this before we launch out and get into the details next Sunday is by mentioning one of my very favorite presidents of the United States, Teddy Roosevelt. It was April 23rd, 1910, when Teddy Roosevelt, former president Teddy Roosevelt, gave one of his most famous speeches in Paris, France. The speech was called Citizenship in a Republic. France had a lot of working people, good-hearted, 
moral working people, that were trying to change the society, the culture, and the government structure there. They also had a lot of naysayers, a lot of critics who stood against them. Teddy Roosevelt stood up in Paris on April 23rd, 1910, and he gave a very famous speech. It's not known for this uh, citizenship in a republic. It's actually known by a different phrase today. Um, I've got a poster of it actually in my, in my office called Man in the Arena. Roosevelt says, says things like this in the speech. He says, the poorest way to face life is to face it with a sneer, to be a cynical, judgmental person. Do something. If you want to change the culture, if you want to change the government, if you want to change what's going around, around you, get to work. Stop talking a big game and do something about it. Stop talking about the problems and propose some solutions. That's what James is all about for the church. He won't allow you to sit in your pew and complain and bicker and gripe about things. He asks you to be a part of change. You don't like something about it? How has God worked in your heart and your life to be an agent of change? To make the church a more beautiful place that reflects his glory and the glory of the gospel? How can you be a part of being light instead of darkness? How can you bring joy instead of despair? How can you bring positive, encouraging things to the church instead of critical, judgmental remarks? James is in our face over and over again. At the end of his speech, Teddy Roosevelt said something that got a rouse from the audience, a standing ovation right in the middle. I've got it for you. I just want to read part of it for you on the slides. He says this. I think we take this to heart when reading James. It's not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. Roosevelt says, the credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he failed by daring greatly, by doing something that was worth it, by giving himself to a cause that was deeper, greater, and stronger than him. Teddy and, and James are doing the same thing. They're looking for people who are authentic, looking for change agents. They're looking for people who look at the church, they see the chaos, they see the disorder, they see broken relationships, they see conflicts, they're not, they're not satisfied with that, and so they want to do something about it. They want to do something about it in a way that shows that they truly do love each other in the body of Christ, that they want to make things better. They look at scripture and they see a a vision of the church and so now their life is going to be adjusted to that vision and do something about it and build a community of faith that is stronger and more robust than anything that they will even live into but that will outlive them. 
that will pass on for the next generation, a church of, of joy when we go through difficult times, of faith and works, not just faith, of taking care of the poor and the marginalized, seeing lives just totally transformed by the power of the gospel and by our relationship with Jesus Christ. James tells us at least three things when we look at this book. He asks us to view truth holistically. Ultimately, when we look at the book of James, we can come away with three takeaways. Number one, we must view truth holistically. Contemporary secular culture wants you to polarize everything. You're either in this side or that side. There's no middle ground whatsoever. You're either for it or you're against it. Even evangelicals today, we can be guilty of separating things that should be joined together. We love God. We're not so great at loving one another. Why? We're separating those things. If you love God, show your love for God and your love for people. James is stepping on our toes. You've got faith? Great. Your faith is good for nothing if it's not combined with works, if your faith is not working itself out in life. Are you an evangelistic person? You're not doing anything for the poor and the needy? That's not evangelism. Evangelism takes care of the poor and needy among us. It goes into the community and finds those opportunities to minister to them. You've got great theology. If your theology is not applied, that's not good theology. That's bad theology. Now go practice your theology and show me that you actually have a strong and healthy theology according to Scripture. James insists that we stop compartmentalizing our lives for our own creaturely comforts. If you truly love God, love one another, even those that are hard to love. If you have faith, get the works going. Authentic Christians don't say one thing and do another. That's the hypocrite. Authentic Christians live out their faith sincerely and genuinely. Number two, authentic Christians live counterculturally. In the church, things should be different than they are in the culture, drastically different. For James, Christianity is a reversal of the way that things normally are in the business world, in your families even. Instead of seeking power and position, James will say, if you've been given authority, use it to serve other people. Be a servant of Christ instead. Instead of promoting our agenda, James will tell us, seek the good of the church. At the end of the day, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's about the bride of Christ, right? And so he steps on our toes again. Rather than playing politics, let's minister to the marginalized. Let's put our faith to action come into the church, you might seem like things are backwards at times. They seem to be upside down, inside out. That's how grace operates. That's how the gospel operates. That's how Jesus operates. He takes the humble man, exalts him, takes those who are exalted, and he brings them down to their knees. He is lowly. He is gentle. The gospel shows love to the most unloving so should we as we practice our faith. Thirdly, James tells us that authentic Christians faith, face trials faithfully. Authentic Christians 
face trials faithfully. Instead of being surprised or defeated when the road gets tough, authentic Christians find joy in the midst of their trials. They're not all up in arms when things in the world around them is falling apart. We actually expect it to fall apart because it's godless. And it's not going to last forever anyway. It's temporary. What's the worst thing that could happen to us in the midst of trials? That we die and go to heaven? Lord, please. (laughs) I would much rather be in glory. So we can face trials faithfully steadfastly and different than the rest of the world faces those things. We can have hope when the world outside of us is, is hopeless, grasping onto anything and everything for significance and for identity. James tells us that suffering is a test. Authentic Christians, most of all, I think the biggest takeaway from, from James when you read this book, it, it reads a lot like Proverbs. It reads a lot like wisdom literature. And so, behind the backdrop of everything James says is wisdom from God. And every piece of wisdom from God that you read in Proverbs or throughout the Scripture, behind that is a person. It's Jesus Christ. James wants us to see Jesus on every page, on every verse, in every chapter of this book. He wants us to look beneath the surface and find Jesus there. He wants us to look between all of our relationships and see the gospel there. He wants us to look out into the world and see grace and forgiveness and everything that seems to be unforgivable. James is a, is a tough, tough book, but at the heart and soul of this book is the person of Jesus Christ. It's what it means to have a strong relationship with Jesus, who although he was the most exalted person who ever lived and ever will live, he humbled himself to the point of obedience, even obedience on a cross. He died for us in humility. He became low so that he might raise up the lowly, that he might give life to those who deserve nothing but death. He rewards faithful Christians when they walk steadfastly through trials in life. If we don't do anything else when we read the book of James, we must see the person of Jesus. We must see wisdom behind these verses. We must be drawn to a closer and closer relationship with him. All right. Let's pray. And next week, hey, let's talk about facing difficulties in life. Let's talk about facing some tough, tough trials. All right. So bring, in Kansas, as they told me, bring your steel-toed shoes. We'll step on them. James will step on them. And um, we'll we'll get some courage to keep on going in life because we have a relationship with Jesus. All right. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for just this opportunity. Thank you for keeping us warm in this building despite the cold temperatures outside. Lord, there's a a sermon and there's an illustration here. No matter what is happening on the outside in the world, we have protection, care, and comfort on the inside with you like nothing else. Our desire in in our prayer is for Tulsa Bible Church to be a saving vessel that goes out into a very dark, difficult, sinful world, saving and rescuing sinners from their plight, from destruction and from death. Lord, help us to be a church, help us to be a a Bible church that practices what we preach. Help our faith to have action and steps to it. 
Help the wisdom that proceeds from her mouth to be true wisdom, not that which is false. Help us to be people who genuinely care for the marginalized, for this community, and for the poor. God, we expect your word to pierce our hearts. We expect that especially in the book of James. We ask that we would respond appropriate to to it. I ask that I would respond appropriately to this book that often pierces my heart as well. Work on each of our lives like only you can through the power of the Holy Spirit. Use this to draw our faith community, our faith family right here closer together as we minister the gospel to others who so desperately need the grace of our Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.